So I have some questions that some of you uh, wrote notes about, but I think we'll just start if you have any questions uh, from the floor. Sounds good. (laughs) I really don't know too much about any of those things you mentioned, (laughs) but it actually does sound, it sounds right. Uh, Somebody made an interesting distinction. They phrased it uh, much better than I can remember exactly, but I think you'll get the idea. That evolution is programmed for survival, not for liberation. And I thought, in a way, that addresses your question. Uh, In some way, the biological imperatives are not necessarily in the service of freedom, they're in the service of survival. You know, and those two are not the same thing. And in some ways we could even say that, uh, and the Buddha suggested this, uh, that it's going against the kind of innate tendencies of the organism, which really uh, embody in a certain way craving for becoming, craving for continued existence. That's the nature of our biology. Liberation is something quite different than that. Uh, And that's why the Buddha would often say that it's spiritual practice where it's like swimming upstream. We're swimming against the current, not only of the conventional norms of society, but in some way we're swimming upstream against uh, some pretty uh, hardwired biological uh, tendencies. So if you're having a difficult time at times, (laughs) it's not surprising, you know. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the, the liberation of mind from attachment to samsara, to samsaric existence, this is no insignificant undertaking. So, in that sense, I think uh, both recognizing this and having appreciation for kind of the work that you're doing and the degree to which we can experience some taste of that freedom, it's quite extraordinary. You know, it's, it's, it's not usual in this world.
Okay, all, all I can report back to you is what the Buddha said, <laughs> as far as we know. Uh, I can't really be speaking from personal experience here, yet. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> I can just imagine, uh, and in some not-so-distant future, the ghost of jo- Joseph <laughs> kind of <laughs> slithering into the meditation hall for <laughs> future three-month courses. <laughs> I hope so. (laughs) So really the two aspects of your questions are not different. In other words, you know, what you said about a more modern interpretation of first, let me back up a minute just to explain some terminology. Within the Buddhist uh, tradition, the term is not so much reincarnation as rebirth. And it's a subtle difference, but an important one, because reincarnation implies that there's some kind of self that is reincarnated. Rebirth suggests that it is an ongoing process, moment after moment, arising and passing, each moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next. But there's nothing carried over either from one moment to the next or one life to the next. And so from the Buddhist perspective or understanding, we really can see birth and death in each moment. You know, and as our practice settles and gets our perception more refined, and you've probably seen this to some extent, we're beginning to tune into the momentary arising and passing away. And I think I've spoken of this before, in each moment, there's a knowing and an object. A knowing and an object. There's only one of six things that are ever known. You know, if you think your life is complicated, it's really not. Because only six things are ever happening. <coughs> there's knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, sensation. Or, did I get the five physical senses? <laughs> smell. And, and, uh, Mind object, you know, thought or emotion. So that's all that's ever happening. What we call life is just that. It's the knowing of an object, and there are only six experiences. The Buddha called this the all. And I always found that teaching pretty remarkable, because we tend to think of this process as being hugely complex, and of course, on some levels it is, but when we drop down into the actual experience moment to moment, it's just that. And so I sometimes think of it as listening to a six-piece chamber orchestra. You know, and that's our life. (laughs) So settle back (laughs) and enjoy the music. (laughs) It's in any moment. It's only a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, or something arising in the mind. That's all that's happening. Does anybody experience anything other than that? So, I love the simplicity of that way of understanding the process. And so we could say rebirth is happening moment after moment. Knowing of these objects are rising and passing away. 
each moment conditioning the next one, so they're not unrelated. And in the same way it's said that the moment of death consciousness, in other words, the last moment of consciousness in this life, it's said recondition or conditions the arising of rebirth consciousness. And Annie in her talk on karma explained how that conditioning happens, you know, the different uh, priorities that can happen in that moment. So it's really the same process, whether you see it moment to moment within this life, or you see it from death consciousness to rebirth consciousness, from life to life. I had thought, uh, some of you may be uh, um, know of our friend, uh, Sri Lankan uh, friend, Dhamma Ruin, who was actually in the first IMS teacher training program. So when he was a young boy in Sri Lanka, very young, two, two or three years old, he started spontaneously chanting uh, these very long, complex Pali suttas in an ancient melody you know, chanting that's not even done anymore in Sri Lanka. And his uh, family taped this young boy chanting this. Uh, and if there's a chance, I, we, have, we have kind of a CD of some of the chanting. I thought to bring it in this evening, but uh, didn't quite happen. Very interesting to hear this young, in this very, you know, child's voice chanting perfectly these long suttas. And he said that as he got older and started meditating, he, you know, he had deep practice and he started remembering the past lives where he had been a chanting monk, going back centuries in the time of the Buddhist commentator Buddhaghosa. You know, and he was actually recalling those memories you know, as a young boy chanting. And it's just interesting to hear it. It's not, and I don't now, this is not proof of rebirth, but it certainly raises interesting questions, you know, where that would have come from. Uh, anyway, maybe sometime before the end of the retreat, we'll just bring in and play it a little bit. I have a question about forgiveness as it relates to karma. Um, if, if you've harmed someone, but you make a sincere you know, request for forgiveness and you make amends, does that somehow mitigate the karmic effect of that? Because in the story about Angulimala, Angulimala um, at least in that story, he got forgiveness from the king, but he never got forgiveness or asked for forgiveness from the people who he actually harmed. So I don't know if you <laughs> speak to that. Okay, so the question which is, <coughs> was about forgiveness and karma, and if one has done unskillful acts, if one has actually sincerely asked for forgiveness, whether that mitigates <coughs> the karmic result. <coughs> I think it goes to uh, the example also that was in, in his karma talk about how our current state of mind influences the karmic results that will come in the future. And remember the example of the salt in the glass and the salt in the pond? 
if our mind is very contracted, in this case we could say unforgiving, you know, or, uh, or we're holding on to guilt. That also is a contracted state of mind. Then the effect will be more noticeable. Right? It's like the salt in the glass. If we are sincere in the asking for forgiveness, if we're recognizing that it was an unskillful action, that suggests a mind that is much more open, much more spacious. So that's like the salt in a pond. So just a few little uh, karmic nuances. And something that, that uh, was counterintuitive to me you know, when, I, when I heard it. One is that it's better to do an unwholesome action knowing it's unwholesome than to do it not knowing it's unwholesome. Right? And when I first heard this, it, you know, my, my intuitive sense, well, if you didn't know it was unskillful, somehow that's better. It's, it excuses it in some way. But from the perspective of the teachings and of karma, that's simply compounding the unskillful act with delusion. And as long as we're in that delusion, there isn't the possibility or the seed of future restraint, because we don't even know that it was unskillful. Whereas if we do something, maybe wrong speech or something, you know, that's, that's unwholesome, but we recognize, oh, that, that was really an unskillful act. So that's adding some wisdom to the mix. And it, it provides the seed then for, oh, well, maybe I won't do that in the future. So again, it's, it's all so interesting. <laughs> you know, guilt. We often justify guilt. You know, we, we've done something unwholesome, and we feel guilty, and we strengthen the guilt by feeling that we should feel guilty because we did something unwholesome. But when you look at guilt, you know, and you're really mindful of it, and I, we may have talked about this, but I, I had this experience very strongly at a time of feeling guilt in the mind, and I saw there was just an ego trip. It was just strengthening the sense of self in a negative way. You know, I'm so bad because I did this. So it's really creating a contraction around the action rather than a spaciousness. And that's when I kind of uh, thought of this technique of wagging the finger at Mara. Did we, did we talk about this? You know, so when guilt, guilt arose, oh, Mara, I see you. you know, that was just a trick of the ego. And very seductive, very seductive. It's easy to fall into feelings of guilt when we realize we've done something unwholesome. But that's just adding another unwholesome mind state. And we can morph that or understand moving it into a feeling of wise remorse. Where we see it, we recognize it was unskillful, we take responsibility for it, but that's in a mental environment of understanding, of forgiveness, of letting go, of moving on, very different than guilt.
So that's a long answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> it's like everything becomes an hour-long Dharma talk. <laughs> <laughs> and you take it back. So if I understood the question, with, uh, I'm not sure I got the last part. If, if you have a you know impulse of generosity and you give something because you feel that somebody needs it, and then afterwards you realize that actually you needed it, and then what's the feeling associated with that? <laughs> In fact, it becomes increasingly obvious they don't need it. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> I think, I think it's always a question of looking at the quality or the motivation in the mind at different moments. You know, and so in the moment of offering it, there was a certain quality of generosity and metta. Afterwards, you know, there was a reconsideration. So then it would be really interesting to look as honestly at you can, okay, what's the mind state involved in that reconsideration? Because I could imagine that it is just a subtle kind of greed coming back in, or selfishness, or maybe it's some wisdom. Maybe there's some, uh, you know, further discernment of the situation where your mind or heart is not contracting, you know, in greed, but just a further understanding of it. So it's always just looking, you know, as honestly as we can at what the quality of our mind, our heart is. And there's often, and this, is, this is also very interesting, in many actions uh, we'll have mixed motives or a series of motives. You know, most of us, probably not any of us, uh, are perfected saints. You know, and so our motivations very often will be a mixture of what's wholesome and then maybe hmm, some unwholesome aspects. I think it's really helpful uh, to be honest, you know, in seeing, okay, what's actually going on in us. And then when we see the mix, we can give emphasis or we can try to strengthen the wholesome aspects. And we can do that because we're seeing it clearly. You know, if we're under the delusion that everything we do is, our motivation is perfectly pure, then very likely we're not looking that carefully. 
you know, or there may be moments like that, you know, and so we appreciate those, but then we also want to see uh, other things that may be arising, because that discernment then allows us to strengthen one and begin to let go of the other. Did that seem clear to you? Because, I mean, just looking at motivation is really, uh, it's really interesting, not only in our meditation practice, of course, but in our lives. Uh, And it takes a lot of clarity. It takes, you know, a willingness to really, to really look. And, And not while you're on retreat, I think this will be spoken about a lot more, but when you go out on retreat, you know, the end of the retreat, just watching the motivations behind speech, huge arena. I think Brian is going to give a whole talk on that you know, before the end of the retreat. Um, inspired by the talk from Brian yesterday, I'm curious where uh, mindfulness sits in the process of the five aggregates. If, it's there no, if there is no self doing the mindfulness, then there should be some kind of function yeah, yeah. that are actually doing the mm-hmm. mindfulness. Yeah. So in something that I've been trying to investigate, then it was perception, the volitional formation, and consciousness. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, where does mindfulness fit into the aggregates, basically? Uh, so that we can understand mindfulness in the same selfless way as we understand everything else. That fourth aggregate, which is often called volitional formations, so in some descriptions of that aggregate, it refers to all of the other mental factors that arise in the mind beside feeling and perception, which have been singled out as their own aggregates because they play such a critical role. But then all of the other mental factors of mindfulness, of delusion, of anger, of love, of everything else that arises in the mind is in that fourth aggregate of mental formations. And that's what keeps the mindfulness, uh, let's say the next moment of awareness going? Well, mindfulness is one of those mental factors. And every moment of mindfulness strengthens the momentum of it. Again, back up a minute. <laughs> so the question was asked, uh, you know, or posed, uh, what's the condition for mindfulness to arise, or what strengthens mindfulness? And according to the teachers, teachings, two, two qualities strengthen mindfulness. One is the factor of perception. So this is interesting. What does that mean? You know, why does perception, why is that a condition for mindfulness to arise? Well, you can understand that, I think, clearly when you begin to see the value of mental noting. Because when you're noting something, that's, the note is not mindfulness. The note is perception. Right? We're recognizing what the object is. Right? Of thinking, or hearing, or pressure, or tightness. 
So when we, when we recognize the moment's experience, that's perception. And that perception, it's like putting a frame around that moment so that we can see it more clearly. Just like you put a frame around a painting, the point is not to look at the frame particularly, but to focus the attention on the painting. So in that way, perception, clear perception, actually supports mindfulness. It supports our ability to be mindful of what's in the frame. The second factor which conditions mindfulness is mindfulness itself, which means that every moment of mindfulness is building the momentum or strengthening the energy of that particular factor to arise again. We could say strengthening or deepening the neural pathway for mindfulness. You know, so every moment, it makes it easier for mindfulness to arise again in the future. Let me read just some of the, the written questions. Do you mind speaking uh, to how to notice moments of intention and how to know once you've noticed it? Even though intention is often the English word used to describe that mental factor in Pali's Jaitana, I think a better English translation is volition. Because intention in English kind of has many levels of meaning and it can get confusing. You know, what's your intention in doing that? That's not volition, that, that's more motivation. So when we use the word intention, we get confused. Does it mean volition? Does it mean motivation? So volition, the word in English, uh, I think you can, can hear, it really implies the energy of movement. Right? It's that quality which initiates an act. So how to notice volition? And I think, as has been mentioned in the hall, in talking about this, one way is just to be aware of those about-to moments. just Just before you do something, there can be a recognition about to do it. Feeling that volitional energy. You know, it's... Again, another word which circles around it, but it's not... Totally pinpointed, you could say the decision. There's a, there's a decision element of volition. It's like the about to do it. There's something impelling us forward into the act. So if we notice those about to moments throughout the day, and you know, there are many, and before changes of physical posture, it's very noticeable. You're about to stand, and then you stand. You're about to reach, and then you reach. Again, at the end of the retreat, you're about to speak before you speak. That would be a good volition (laughs) to notice. Or, yeah. So an example of not being aware of volition. Have you ever noticed your hand in the refrigerator before you quite know how it got there. (laughs) 
you know, the hand did not just migrate. <laughs> there was a volition in the mind, you know, fueled by desire, fueled by wanting. But with a lot of our ordinary activities, we're not paying that careful attention. And so we, we pass right over that moment of volition and find ourselves in the middle of an action. Here on retreat, you know, where you're going slowly enough or attentively enough, you can really begin to practice catching those moments. You know, the volition, the about to, before the act begins. So that's one way. There's another way that I started experimenting with just recently, in the last few years, on retreat. And this is, this you can do really in walking practice, uh, and not even when you're walking particularly slowly. If you're just uh, going from one place to another, or you're taking a little faster walk, based on the realization that if you're taking a step, and this actually you can notice quite clearly in the slow walking, if you're taking a step, there needs to be a continual stream of volitions to keep the foot moving. If the volition to move stops mid-step, the movement is going to stop. So it's a bit like an electric current you know, running through a motor. keeps the motor going. You, just, you pull out the plug, it stops. So understanding this, understanding that volition is actually arising in every moment, keeping the movements going, keeping the activities going. So I was doing walking, just kind of at an easeful pace, and I was uh, reflecting on this. Oh yeah, to keep, to keep walking there has to be an ongoing stream of volitions, otherwise the body will stop moving. And so I began to feel, it was almost as if there was a little volition motor it was just, <laughs> that's what it felt like. You know, it felt like there was just this little you know, volition engine that was, that was keeping the body moving. And of course, in one way, that was just kind of an image, but it did relate to some felt experience of it. And what was interesting about that was in the experience of this ongoing stream of volitions, the selfless nature of it became very clear. Whereas in the about to moments, I mean, if we're really mindful, we'll see that that also is not I, not self, but it's easier to identify, well, I'm the one about to do something. Whereas in this other experience of just feeling the volition motor, keeping things going, it really felt, and the experience was it, of, be, of it being so impersonal. Um, well, it's just something you can play with. Sankara Dukkha seems to imply we can't control anything, but karma and mindfulness practice indicate we do have agency in what happens to us now and in the future hoping you can clarify this distinction. 
Okay, Sankara Dukkha does not necessarily imply that there's no control, or a better word would be influence on things. The beauty of the Buddha's teaching He just saw with such clarity the nature, basically nature, the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, and he saw what factors, what qualities lead to what. He said, these qualities of the mind are wholesome, and they lead to happiness. These qualities of mind are unwholesome, they lead to suffering. But he delineated all of this with such amazing precision and clarity I mean, can you imagine coming here and not having any idea of what's skillful, what's unskillful, you know, the consequences of actions, and you had to figure it all out by yourself? I mean, it's hard to be mindful of four breaths, <laughs> much less figure out these subtleties, you know, of how the mind is working. So the Buddha's gift to us is just this amazing map you know, of the mind and of our lives. And so when there's that understanding, oh, this leads to happiness, this leads to suffering. So that understanding, even if it starts on a conceptual level, you know, that's a certain level of wisdom, that wisdom can condition right effort, right effort conditions uh, you know, attending to the wholesome states, letting go of the unwholesome. So it's all selfless, but there's an understanding which is influencing the unfolding and how our lives unfold. So Sankara Dukkha doesn't mean that there's no influencing of our lives or the outcome, otherwise we wouldn't be here. A better or a more complete understanding of Sankara Dukkha would be that all conditioned things, that's what Sankara means, all conditioned things. The Dukkha aspect of them is that it requires an ongoing application of energy to keep a system coherent. So in one way, I understand Sankara Dukkha as being the law of entropy, you know, which says that systems without an application of some energy tend to disorder, tend to disorder. So we can see that, we can see so many different examples, you know, and maybe Rebecca mentioned this in her talk, you know, What would happen if you, know, you didn't clean your body without putting energy into that system? It would get pretty unpleasant pretty quickly. You know, why does your house get dirty? You have to keep cleaning it. What dukkha? <laughs> you know, the, that's, the, that's kind of the larger meaning of Sankara Dukkha. Mindfulness doesn't happen just by itself. It has to be cultivated. So even though it's a wholesome state, it's not 
the mindfulness itself is not complete liberation or freedom. It leads to it. But all conditioned things are dukkha, you know, in the sense of being in and of themselves unsatisfying and needing constant uh, development, constant work. Um, So I don't know if that quite got to the heart of that question, but Sankara Dukkha covers everything. And within that, there can be a transforming influence on how things unfold if there's an understanding of the laws governing the unfolding. You know, and that's, that's really what we're learning here. I mean, just think, you know, and this is one of the reasons uh, the Buddha said that understanding the law of karma, or, or the law of karma, he called the light of the world. Because it describes, not, it's not the only law, as Annie mentioned, but it's a significant law governing the unfolding of events. For people who don't understand that actions bring results. So then they're very, uh, there can be a lot of confusion in terms of uh, a path of development, a path towards freedom, because we don't know what leads to what. That's why this understanding of the law of karma is an essential part of what the Buddha called right view. You know, because we're seeing clearly, you know, actions bring results what kind of actions lead to suffering, what kind of actions lead to happiness. And one way of experiencing this directly, so that it's not only theoretical in terms of future results, but if you think of the law of karma as describing the unfolding or the experience of our inner environment, the environment of our minds, the environment of our hearts, it becomes so obvious that greed is polluting the environment, that hatred is polluting the the inner environment, as well as, as the outer. We can feel it. We can feel you know, the constriction or the contraction of greed and of hatred and the fog of delusion. Those are karmic results of those mind states. And we can feel the inner environment, our own inner environment, you know, in the practice of generosity or love or wisdom. So it's, it's very immediately recognizable. You know, and, and that's why the Buddha called the understanding of karma, the light of the world, because it illuminates this understanding. In this, in this model, the, uh, the influencing itself is also conditioned, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the comment was, in this model, the influencing itself is also conditioned, and that's why we want to understand that mindfulness reveals to us 
which qualities are doing the influencing. Right? Is it wisdom that's influencing our actions? Is it greed that's influencing our actions? Right? So it's all, it's all being influenced by one thing or another. If we're not mindful, we don't know. You know, and it's just, so then we're just acting out the habit patterns of our, of our particular conditioning. But mindfulness opens, it opens everything up. You know, we begin to see, oh, that's what's arising in the mind. That's what's motivating this action. Is that a good motivation? You know, is it going to lead to happiness? Or not? <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, you know, one of his very early books was called The Miracle of Mindfulness. It's a beautiful title, because it is a, it is a miracle. It, this quality of mindfulness that, you know, you're in this incredibly fortunate circumstance of, you've taken six weeks or three months and this is your only job. <laughs> This is it. You, you have nothing else to do except to practice being mindful. <laughs> what a fantastic opportunity. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true you don't get two weeks vacation. <laughs> but the whole retreat is a vacation. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's really powerful. You're cultivating this ability to be aware of what's arising so that we can actually learn from it and, and see. And that's what transforms, that's what transforms our lives. Well, uh, Bonnie's going to actually, well, let's say we've talked about Bonnie giving a talk about this. <laughs> so whether she actually is or not remains to be seen. Uh, so I'll just say one thing now, and then uh, if she doesn't talk about it, We'll talk about it next week. <laughs> but there's, there's one instruction uh, in the teachings which I really love. It's in the Dhammapada, you know, where it says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. You know, and I think we're, we're mostly familiar with the first two. You know, we, can let go of just being lost in all these thoughts of the past, lost in all these thoughts of the future. But letting go of the present, like, that's like, unfixating our mind even from the present moment experience. 
you know, and so much of the practice and the instruction and the language is be in the present and pay attention to the present moment. And so there can be a tendency in doing that to have a certain kind of stickiness to the present moment. You know, we're sort of like Velcro. We're Velcroed to the moment. And so the Buddha is saying, yeah, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. So even in just having that thought come to mind, you might experience a certain kind of release or dropping back. I can't remember whether I've mentioned this, but it's what I call dropping back into channel zero. You know, it's just... And then everything is arising and passing freely. There's no, there's no stickiness in that. So we could call that a timeless realm. But the whole notion of time and how it's created and maybe maybe Bonnie will get into that. Does mindfulness also change? You've probably noticed that it does. (laughs) It is also arising and passing in the moment and there are moments when it's strong and it's there and then moments when it's not there. You know, when you're lost in a thought or lost in a fantasy, then mindfulness is not present. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you, can, you can really see its changing nature when you pay attention to and you acknowledge, you know, when mindfulness is present and then realize when it has been absent. Uh, Uh-huh. But not always. So we practice, we practice the vipassana. Yes. If we don't practice vipassana, we, uh, when the consciousness arises, and we have no practice. Since we practice the vipassana, so the, uh, <coughs> the consciousness arises, and the uh, mindfulness arises. That's the intent. You know, and so we're practicing having mindfulness arise in every moment of consciousness. And the more we practice it, the more continuous it can be. But as I'm sure you've experienced, it's not perfect yet. You have two more weeks. (laughs) You know, and as I said before, you know, as you practice it, there is a certain momentum that starts to build where it does arise moment after moment more and more effortlessly. And so there are times in practice where it really is pretty continuous without effort because enough of a momentum has been built up. Um, So this... uh, Saito Pandita used to talk about uh, different kinds of effort that's needed. You know, and you can kind of get a sense of this in the development of mindfulness. Uh, I can't even remember the uh, all three terms he used, but the first term was interesting. Uh, He called it launching effort. You know, where to get something going really requires a different kind of effort than when the momentum has built up and it's going by itself, there's a different quality of effort or energy needed at that time. So in the launching mode, there is that 
there is that quality of making an effort to remember to come back. You know, we're coming back again and again. Uh, and that's important. We, we need to do that. We need to make that kind of effort in order for it to become effortless. Okay, so the, the, the question was, you know, in the tendency of othering, you know, which is that, basically that element of conceit, which is comparing and judging, you know, others. Uh, is there anything special to see in that, or, or is it really just noticing it as another thought? Uh, basically, I would keep it simple. Uh, Do you know the story of the Gordian knot? This is, I think, Greek mythology. So, uh, there was this ancient king, you know, in the, somewhere in the Near East. Uh, and he created this uh, very complex knot. And he said, whoever can untie the knot can marry his beautiful daughter and inherit the kingdom. So, of course, a lot of people came to try to untie the knot, but they couldn't. It was too, it was too tangled, too complex. Alexander the Great came through town, heard of this challenge, came up to the king's knot, took his sword and... <laughs> That's what we can do in our practice. You know, it's like we can cut through to the root of it without untangling all its psychological roots. You know, which in some domains and situations can be helpful. You know, so it's not to say that there's, there's not a value in understanding that. But there's also, and this is, this is the beauty and the power of the meditative process, we don't actually have to go through all that necessarily to free the mind. We can just cut through it by seeing it as a thought. It doesn't matter what the content of the thought is. When we understand thought as being an empty phenomena, the content can be anything. But we're seeing its emptiness. So I don't know whether we've spoken of one, of one of the most interesting investigations for me in the practice, in watching my mind, is to hold the question as different thoughts appear, what is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, but what is a thought as a phenomenon? Very interesting. <laughs> You know, here, here's this experience which we have, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of times a day. 
Have we ever really stopped to look at the very nature of thought rather than being concerned or involved with what the thought is saying? You know, and when we do, when, when we're really saying, well, what is a thought? And we're looking very directly at it, and we have endless opportunities to do this. It's so, it's so interesting because we see that, I like to say that the thought is little more than nothing. It's just, it's just the most ephemeral of energy blips in the mind. You know, it's so... When, when we're really mindful of it, when we're not lost in the content, when we're seeing a thought just as a thought, psh, and we see that it has no power at all. The only power thoughts have is the power we give them. So what's so amazing is that this phenomenon which when unnoticed, totally runs our lives. It's like they're the little dictators of the mind. You know, go here, they'll go there, do this, do that. You know, get married, get divorced. <laughs> and we just follow along. You know, we're kind of scurrying along. You know, following every little command. So they have all this power when we're unaware of them. And yet as soon as we're mindful, oh, there's just a thought. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing much there. It has no power at all. So that is a very uh, useful insight. <laughs> because then, when we really understand that, we have the ability to settle back and increasingly, I mean, we still get lost plenty of times, but increasingly we have the ability to see thoughts arise, whether thoughts of other and judgment and comparing, whatever it is. It's just a thought. When we have that ease of seeing thought for what it is, then we can settle back and really exercise a wise discernment about which thoughts in terms of content are valuable, which we should act on and which we should just let pass through. But there are very few people in the world who have really looked at the nature of thought in this way. You know, mostly, and you can see from your own experience, mostly our habit is just to be caught up in the content, in the story. You know, and there are lots of different stories, and some are beautiful, and some are really cause a lot of suffering. But it's not seeing the emptiness of thought. So I really, it's extremely interesting to look in this way. Does it work the same way um, when you get paralyzed with fear or doubt? So do do I work the same way? <laughs> when I get paralyzed with fear or doubt. And as you know, I've talked a lot about working with fear. In order to work in that way, there has to be a prior step, which for thought is not that difficult, but for these strong emotions is essential. And that is the quality of acceptance. So when there's strong fear, Yes, it is an empty, it's just another empty mind state. It's a cloud passing through. 
It is possible to see it in that way, but we can see it that way if we're reactive to it. And it's very easy to be reactive to these painful emotions. You know, just like a pain in the body, these painful emotions, we don't like them and we want to get rid of them. And so that's our relationship to it. Or we retreat from them. So until we practice being mindful, mindfully accepting of them, it's at that point that we can, oh yeah, this is, this is just a mind state. Yeah. But we need that first step. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, it's not that. It's hard to second guess the Buddha, <laughs> you know. And you know, the, uh, but one thing to understand is that uh, how to say delusion is the ground of all unwholesome mind states. So in every unwholesome mind state, delusion is present. And so in craving, delusion is also there. You know, the, the Buddha laid out kind of different templates. So I think, and this is just uh, kind of an intuitive sense, since I don't quite know why he created that template for the Four Noble Truths and then used other templates in different situations. But the different kinds of craving that have been mentioned, you know, craving for sense pleasures, craving for continued existence, craving for non-existence, which are all rooted in delusion. But the craving is a place in that law of dependent origination that Brian spoke about, you know, in the links. That's the place where the whole chain can be cut. There, there are several places where it can be cut. It can be cut at feeling pleasant and unpleasant. If we're really mindful of that, then it doesn't lead to craving. If we're mindful of craving, then it doesn't lead to clinging. If we're mindful of the clinging, it doesn't lead to becoming. So it may, that may be one reason why the Buddha highlighted this force of craving in the mind as being the cause of dukkha. But the underlying cause is ignorance. Uh, yeah. So cut through both. <laughs> yeah. And if you cut through delusion, that will take care of the craving. Okay, this is a lot of fun. I could do this <laughs> for hours.
however, my colleagues will not appreciate that. <laughs> so why don't we just sit for a few minutes? Just at the very end, I was reminded of one uh, experience with my first teacher, Manindraji, who had endless, boundless energy. We once took him to, a, he was visiting, we took him to a museum in uh, Washington, D.C. He needed to see every single exhibit and read every single word about each exhibit. I was exhausted. There were some couches, you know. <laughs> I just laid down after, you know, three hours of, I just laid down on the couches. <laughs> so in one teaching event in California, it was just like a, an afternoon, he started answering questions and he kept on going till the last person had left. <laughs> <laughs> He started like about two in the afternoon. I think it was ten at night. <laughs> yeah, and finally the last person <laughs> gave up. <laughs> uh, so it's good to have a time frame. <laughs>